0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We begin with great news that the Mariner's Mirror podcast has been nominated for an award as part of the Maritime Media Awards for 2023. Yes, we have been nominated for the Babcock International First Sea Lords Award for Best Use of Digital Media. I actually think that they should win an award for having an award with the longest title. Anyway, we have been nominated, no doubt for the fact that we've only been going a short time but already have enjoyed 300,000 audio downloads and several significant hits with our clever video and animation production, including an animation of a curious 19th century propeller design that's been seen 4.2 million times on Instagram. But enough of our past glories because today we're looking into one of the greatest of all maritime mysteries, the extraordinary tale of the Mary Celeste. For those of you who don't know the story, well you probably know the name and the outline of the facts. That, in the winter of 1872, the brigantine De Gratia chances upon another brigantine in the middle of the Atlantic, near the Azores. She is the Mary Celeste. She's under sail, but she is silent, and it soon becomes clear that in fact she is entirely deserted. Ever since, for over 150 years, the mystery of why the Mary Celeste was abandoned and what happened to the ten souls on board has spawned thousands of conjectures, conspiracy theories, fictions and fantasies, mostly myths made from fractured truths. To find out more, and in a desperate bid to unpick the myth from the reality, I spoke with the historian Graham Fieller, a man who has written nothing short of a library of maritime books, including The Mysterious Case of the Mary Celeste, 150 Years of Myth and Mystique. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is a man who really does have salt in his veins. It's the fantastic maritime mythbuster. Here's Graham. Graham, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Well, thanks very much for the invitation, Sam. It's a great pleasure. So it, it's such a wonderful story, the Mary Celeste. Um, how, do you remember how you first heard about it, or is it something that's always just sort of been around your historical consciousness?
1: Well, I've been writing about seafaring and ships in the sea, and in particular, the stories of uh, ships and of the people who sailed in them, whether they're actual professional seafarers or, or otherwise for a long time. The Mary Celeste wasn't really on my radar. I mean, I'd known about it as a, a sort of a metaphor really for ghost ship, or uh, but the details of it I wasn't absolutely clear about. Um, but the way I came to it in this regard for writing a book about it was that I was commissioned or invited to write about it. Uh, by commissioning editor at the History Press, the publishers, um, uh, Amy Rigg, and I at first said, I'm I'm, I'm not sure about that, because it's not really part, it's not something that I was 100% interested in as such, Um, but I did say, you know, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. If someone wants to write a, wants me to write a book about it and get royalties, well, it's fine with me, especially if it's my general sort of bailiwick. So I looked into it, and it was far more interesting than I actually suspected. I mean, up until a few yeah. years ago, or even less, I would suspect. I thought it was the Marie Celeste, and I would guess that ninety percent of people still think of it as the Marie Celeste. And what, how it became uh, the Marie Celeste from original Mary Celeste is an interesting story in itself. But um, mm. I found it. I I came to it with an, a fairly blank slate, really, because I didn't know the details. But what the whole story of the Mary Celeste, and this is what, to me, always makes a good narrative, is a good story. There's no question about it. Whatever kind of book you write, whatever kind of um, picture you paint, there has to be a story that is within the, that makes sense. It's, there's a coherency about it and an interest and something that grips you. And to me, the great story about the Marius Lesk was actually more about what sprung up after the uh, discovery of the Marius Lesk and the Court of Inquiry at Gibraltar and all of the myths and the uh, fake news. And this is what I found interesting and so pertinent about it in a very universal way, i.e., the search for the truth about this mystery and if you take off of this mystery the search for the truth and how that search over the decades became so boulderized and barnacled and you know misshapen so what we see today is fake news alternative facts um no matter how obnoxious they might seem and contemporary it's no news story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a wonderful way of thinking about it. Let's start. We all know. We all know what happens at the end of the story. Let's start. I think about a general context of nineteenth-century seafaring because you make a point very early on that it wasn't unusual to find an abandoned ship, and I think that will surprise a lot of people. So, will you talk to us a little about seafaring in the nineteenth century and and the, the wild west of the sea?
1: Yeah. The um. The thing is that in the 19th century, there were an awful lot of what were called derelicts, just derelicts, um, that drifted around. Ships that
0: were adrift.
1: Ships that were adrift and, generally speaking, unmanned or or abandoned in one way or another. And the only thing on them was often a dog or something on the uh, poop deck or whatever. Um, But they were abandoned for reasons, generally speaking, of weather or collision with another vessel or something like that, or any number of perils of the sea. And usually they were, I mean, they drifted around literally in their hundreds. There are uh, tabulations by Lloyds, uh, who do all the shipping information, of uh, each year how many derelicts were found. So those are the number of derelicts found, and they are two, 300. And this is, by the way, mainly in the North Atlantic. You, mm. you don't get an awful lot, A, in the South Atlantic, uh, Indian Ocean, the Pacific, mainly because they weren't so densely trafficked uh, in that time. I mean, there were a lot of shipping going on. But um, the North Atlantic was the scene where you often found uh, derelicts at sea for one reason or another. Um But the difference with the Mary Celeste is that they were often left to wander. There's no reason to take them in as a prize to claim, make a, a salvage claim because they were usually so dilapidated, uh, half underwater, if they were wooden ships, for example, dismasted. They were usually, a, when you say derelict, They were a wreck, you know, Mm. Um, and a
0: danger to other shipping, though, I suspect. And
1: they were very, uh, actually, in the North Sea, there are many occasions when ships that were found derelict were sunk by whatever ship discovered them and then, uh, you know, put out of action, sunk so that they wouldn't be a danger to shipping. North Atlantic is a little bit different because it's a big place um there was still a danger to shipping but there was a, there have been instances of ships uh drifting across back and forth across the north atlantic two or three times there's a famous one the mary wallacroft which was found in the i think probably the uh, eastern atlantic uh, western atlantic she drifted around and of course in the atlantic you have that gyre of currents and they can go yeah. around basically centered on the Sargasso Sea, around and around. And Mary Walston, I think I've got the name right, um, went aground eventually after three years on the coast of, Sc- uh, coast of Scotland, I think it was. So there mm. were a so lot th- of ships drifting around.
0: Yeah, and the question obviously stands out as to why, why did the Mary Celeste become famous? But we're not gonna ask answer that immediately. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, Talk a little about her construction and where the Mary Celeste was born.
1: Right. Well, it was she wasn't the Mary Celeste when she was built. She was the Amazon and she was built up, as you said, uh, in the Bay of Fundy up on the, uh, well, the mainland side, uh, Spencer's Island, which was a nothing place at the time. I don't know what it's like now, but. Uh, it was built by a young guy who wanted to be a shipbuilder, and he built the Amazon. Um, she was, a hundred and, was she, 198 tons or something, 200 foot long, thereabouts, i.e. a very typical uh, Canadian maritime type of vessel that would trade around the coast and, and this and that. Um, but she had something that, as I said in the book, became quite an interesting aspect of her at the time. This was in 1861, so mid-1800s. Mid she was a brigantine rig, i.e. square rigged on the foremast, fore-and-aft rigged with a gaff mainsail on the main uh, mainmast. In those days, the square sails on sailing ships in general uh, the second sail up on any mast was the topsail. And they were usually single topsails, and these were big sails. The only bigger sail was the uh, the mainsail, really, or the four-course, uh, the big sail below it. But they were big, and they were really hard to handle when men had to go up on the yard arms and haul the sails in to furl them when they needed to be taken in. I mean, they were a devil, especially if you're in some very inhospitable place. Uh, And usually when you had to haul in a topsail, it was a very inhospitable circumstance. So towards uh, the later years of the 19th century, the single topsail was split into two smaller upper and lower topsails. this had a bearing on the Mary Celeste when she was found, because one of those was all in tatters and the other one was set um, up to a point. Uh, So she was a single topsail, uh, brigantine, and she did her trading right across the Atlantic, very, very typical sort of uh, nondescript type of vessel, Uh, not a greyhound of the sea. She carried cargo, lumber, timber, uh, whatever cargoes, effectively, that she would be able to find. And around, as I say, around the Maritime provinces. But of course, uh, the first image of her was actually painted in November. I think it was 1861 at Marseille. So she was doing transatlantic crossings. And then typically they would sail down to the Caribbean um, possibly northern South American ports but there were hundreds of them and they were the workhorse of the merchant marine of the time. Mm.
0: So we've got lots of lots of ships like her and also lots of lots of derelicts adrift in the North Atlantic so nothing we've discovered so far explains why she suddenly became so famous. Let's talk about her final voyage. What do we know about um, her captain and her crew?
1: Well, what we know and what was really one of the worst aspects about her later mythology was that the captain in particular, um, Benjamin Spooner Briggs, who was a Yankee uh, ship uh, shipmaster, and he'd been a sea captain for quite some time anyway. He was from a background of God-fearing Yankee family near Cape Cod, south of Cape Cod, in the Massachusetts shore. And uh, he, as I as was the the um, the principal of the time, he wrote into the articles of agreement, the ship's articles to contract the crew, no grog allowed on board. Here's Tito, right. and so that was significant uh, because of again other fake news about. How the Mary Celeste had come to be abandoned later on. With him were his wife, which was not atypical at the time. Yeah. And by the way, this was the first time that um, uh, Briggs, Captain Briggs, had sailed in the Mary Celeste. He was a part owner of it uh, when he was given some, I think a, a third of the shares in her by the owner, uh, Winchester. Who was the, who had by then become the owner of the ship. And by then, by the way, she had become uh, re registered as American flagged only a few years beforehand. Uh, He he took her over, um, re uh, reworked the ship, put some, uh, put another deck on, increased the tonnage slightly from 198 to about 280 tons hold was increased, the capacity of the hold was increased, and so on. So the crew mm. that he picked, because he had his wife and two-year-old daughter on board, he had a seven-year-old son which he uh, did not want to take because he wanted wow. him to continue his schooling. But it wasn't terribly unusual to have uh, your spouse with you. Uh, by spouse, I mean wife, because I don't know of any sailing ship Uh, captain who was a woman in those times. Um, Certainly there are other important figures, but anyway, uh, so himself, his wife, his two-year-old daughter, and then uh, seven crewmen uh, who were, again, the fact that his wife and daughter were on board, he would have picked them very carefully. They would not have been uh, the rowdy, Um, virtual homicidal maniacs that a lot of people portrayed, you know, quite a lot of people portrayed afterwards uh, in various myths about what happened. So he was careful to pick you know, good seamen. his first mate. Um, He knew very well he'd sailed and in fact had skippered a ship uh, before. So he he was uh, he was punctilious about the good character of his crew, four of whom were Prussian German. Um, I'm not sure if they were Americanized or not. This would have been in New York City, by the way, in October of uh, 1872. Uh, But in the press later on, the fact that they were Prussian German, bearing in mind that Germany didn't exist at the time, was a xenophobic sort of uh, reaction and a calumnification of yeah. part of the crew and their supposed um, disposition to malfeasance, I would say. Anyway, he got aboard. What he called and what his wife, last when she wrote home about when they were leaving, said, we've got a pretty good set here, blah, blah, blah. So, and they did, and they were a pretty good set. They were a very good set, because in some crews, they absolutely, on some other ships, Yankee ships in particular at that time, they were not a good set. You know, they were people, except for the officers, um were deckhands, were people picked up from God knows where, press ganged into service and all this sort of thing. So he was, yeah. he had... Uh, and what I say is a good sea go- going and seafaring um, set of people under him. He took with the, uh, the cargo of 1701 casks of alcohol. It's important to remember that this alcohol is an industrial type of alcohol which was intended for use in fortifying wines, uh, Italian wines in particular. It was not something that you just cracked open the cask and had a good drink of, because (laughs) basically you'd go blind, you'd be be crazy. So that was important as well. Okay. Anyway, they set off 7th of November, 1872. After a few days' hesitation, uh, ten, as we we call them on a ship, 10 souls on board And they set off from New York uh, City Harbor, 7th of of, uh, November, 1872, to cross uh, to the Straits of Gibraltar for discharge of the 1701 casts of alcohol at the destination of General. On the 4th of December, and after that, nothing is heard of her because there's no way to communicate with any vessel at sea at that time. Telegraphy was not a shipping thing, even though it had been in use over land. It wasn't introduced on ships until the early 20th century years. So she took a month or so getting across the North Atlantic. It was said to have been a rather um, particularly turbulent year for stormy weather over the North Atlantic. Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but ship shipmasters were used to. That was their bread and butter. If they couldn't deal with yeah. the heavy weather, I mean, across the North Atlantic, it could well be turbulent. Well, they'd, they'd go around Cape Horn. They go around Good Hope, you know, the Southern Ocean. This wasn't something that is going to bother them. If it, did. No,
0: it was literally their jobs. Coping with that was was how they made their money and survived.
1: Yes. Uh, and uh, so anyway, uh, so nothing was heard from it. 4th of December, 1872, another brigantine, approximately the same size, a little bit bigger than the merit Celeste, which had set out from New York City a week later on the 15th of November of that year, came across this abandoned, derelict ship sailing roughly be- halfway between the Azores and Portugal. Um, Captain Moorhouse and his mate, Oliver Devo, looked through the spyglass and said, what's up with that ship? She's sailing erratically, and s- the most less bearing in mind that she was headed for the Straits of Gibraltar, i.e. roughly southeast, east-southeast at that on that route and in that location she would have been about southeast but she was heading west back to where she had come erratically in a rather drunken course so they went aboard two uh, captain Morehouse sent three men in a boat two of which went aboard captain uh, mate oliver devo and another uh, seaman to look her over see so it was up and they found uh, I mean, to summarise very briefly, they found the ship that, although she had three and a half feet of water in her hold, in her builders, which wasn't a lot, the, the ship that found her, the day Drassia, it was said, had made more water in her builders than the Mary Celeste
0: had. <laughs> so, uh, That's a great fact. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay. uh,
1: basically, a few sails were tattered, but she, uh, unlike other myths in the future that said she was under sail she was this and that she was uh, not under full sail she had her mainsail her gaff mainsail was down and furled on the boom she had a few foresails up some were down not furled but anyway down um, and a few sails on her foremast were still um, intact So she looked like she'd been through a little bit of a battle, but she was still sailing. And with a loose rudder, i.e. knowing the helmer, she could swing this way and that way with the winds and currents, which is why she was sailing erratically. They went aboard, made a little audit of her, um, and uh, Captain Moore has said, look, let's take her to Gibraltar. Um, We'll claim her as a salvage and see what kind of uh, monetary prize award we can get there because she was headed by the way also to she was actually headed to gibraltar for orders i.e to say uh to to get an order where to um discharge her cargo of petroleum which she had in casks and barrels which was the, the usual um way to carry that cargo at that time anyway
0: The cargo, the cargo was was intact. The Mary Celeste cargo was was still intact, and but no people.
1: Oliver Oliver when he testified, uh, he said that car that cargo was untouched. It was in, intact. There was nothing untoward about it. He could see nothing on, uh, that had been disturbed about it, which was very important. And yeah. uh, the only unusual thing was that the hatch cover on the fore hatch. Which was a hatch going down to the cargo hold was open and left lying on the deck beside the uh, the hatch. Also, the lazarette hatch at the stern of the ship was open, and the, the hatch cover there was lying on the uh, on the deck as well. And those factors would be important in trying to surmise how the you know what had actually caused the abandonment of the vessel. So uh, Morehouse put three of his men on, and, and by the way, obviously, they didn't find anyone neither hide nor hair on the Mary left, obviously. So she was all what people say is a ghost ship. Well, ghost ship, whatever. I, she was a derelict, really. Um, but what was key was that she was seaworthy. She wasn't whole uh, or no dismasting some raggedy running rigging lying over the the sides and and so on. But it took uh, Devo and his men, two other men, a couple of days to put her in order. The binnacle, which held the compass in front of the steering wheel, was, uh, was knocked over for no reason that anyone could discover. Odd sort of arrangement with the binnacle as a small aside is that binnacles are usually bolted to the deck. The mm. Celeste Binnacle was actually apparently lashed down on cleats to the deck with lashings. I found that rather odd. I've never heard of that before. Um, yeah. To me, it suggested that maybe she had been bolted, which would have been the usual case, and lashed uh, back as a makeshift sort of thing. Anyway, that was... The, that was uh, So he put her in good order, Devo did. Um, Sailed in tandem with the De Gracia, the ship that found her, towards Gibraltar. And a lot of uh, later stories said, oh, the De Gracia took her in tow. Well, you can imagine a brigantine of roughly the same size as the ship that uh, he found, the derelict, trying to tow a 280 ton vessel under sail. I mean, they would have been there by uh, maybe the following year, but you know. Anyway, uh, so they both sailed together, and uh, the De Gracia got into Gibraltar on the 12th of December. Oh, by the way, this was the 4th of December, so she took eight days to get there uh, till the eight, uh, 12th of December. And the Mary Celeste arrived a day later because she had the shelter on the North African coast because of bad weather in the Straits of Gibraltar. Anyway, she arrived on Friday the 13th of December, not a very great date to arrive somewhere, Immediately arrested because there was the uh, ship owners for the De Gracia put in a claim for salvage. And under those conditions, when that sort of a, a request was made or demand was made, The ship that is being investigated or claimed is arrested to detain her at the port. as a matter of principle. Court of Inquiry was set up in the law courts in Gibraltar. Gibraltar was the first place that they put into. So that was where the Court of Inquiry uh, was held. It was established Mm -hmm. and started on the 18th of December. Under uh, Judge Cochrane, who was a Nova Scotian born, and he was uh, uh, he was the judge of the court um, because he happened to be there. He wasn't They didn't import him from Nova Scotia or anything. He happened yeah. to be there. Yeah, yeah. So, but there were the interesting characters of the court of inquiry were. Uh, The figurehead of them was the Queen's Proctor, uh, Frederick Sully Flood, Sully hyphen flood, or Sully without a hyphen flood, variously spelled. And he was as interesting a character as you could hope to have. And I don't want to go into his history because it's it's, it's in the book. And it's a longish history. uh, But he ended up in Gibraltar as the attorney general because he was effectively a failed barrister from the uk he was of irish parentage but an englishman born of a fishmonger in london but he became a barrister failed because he had gambling debts had to sell his uh his uh business his legal business and moved to gibraltar eventually became the attorney general and he was the lead uh, prosecutor now i don't know this is called an admiralty or vice admiralty court of inquiry which is a civil court under the queen's uh, queen victoria obviously at the time under the queen's auspices a proctor which is what sully flood's uh title was queen's proctor a proctor was the lawyer or lead prosecutor in shipping and ecclesiastical courts at the time. Again, legal uh, maritime legal things are not my forte, but uh, you know, and I, I'm not sure if it's still the case. But at the time, that's what the term was, and he was the one who prosecuted it to um, expose. Any defects, essentially any defects in the claimants' uh, claims for uh, salvage reward. That's right.
0: right, right, right. Yeah. And what, what did they discover? What, what do they think happened? Sully Flood was of colorful character,
1: but he was uh, what a lot of people have described as a rather jumped up. Pengendrum arrogant little uh, <laughs> man and a very curious individual, but his uh, he was rather more um, I think he thought more of himself than his than him his self actually warranted um, yes, okay, so he was quite a, so he when he saw the words And heard that uh, through investigations, the surveys on the Mary Celeste at Gibraltar had discovered things like uh, marks that looked like hatchet marks on the rails or blood on the deck, a bloody sword, spalling, which is splintering of the boards, either side of the stem of of the ship, spalling being Coming loose, which was quite common in those times when wooden ships, you know, would butt into heavy weather. Anyway, his assumption, and in fact, forever after, he believed that there had been uh, violence, a fray, uh, violence afoot uh, that caused um, that causes the Mary Celeste to be abandoned, and specifically that members of this very upstanding and righteous crew, and probably most particularly the Prussian-German decans, had got at the alcohol, got raging drunk, took over the offices and murdered the uh, captain, his wife, his child, and crew, jumped ship, and waited basically for any passing vessel to take them away. Sully Flood's contention, which was in the Court of Inquiry, never substantiated by evidence. And I'm hearing echoes of a lot of very contemporary things at the moment. His Mm. contention that was never substantiated was that of a violence afoot that uh, perpetrated by members of the crew um, that had left her abandoned because they'd murdered everybody on board. Uh, essentially, that was its case. Mm-hmm. Investigations, further investigations um, and surveys of the vessel showed that the blood on the deck was not blood. It, was, it could not be it was, some, there was nothing blood about it, it was probably rust. There was a sword on board that he thought, oh, that Sully Flood thought was besmeared with blood. It was rusty, for God's sake. It had been on board mm. for you know, years. And so it went on from uh, 18th of December until the 5th of March. Oliver Devo, first mate of the De Gracia and the one who had Skipper the ship, uh, the Mary Celeste, into Gibraltar, was called three times to the Inquiry, but he had to be called back from general because the De Gracia actually was released from uh, being kept there to sail to her destination. She would have been uh, running up uh, costs and everything.
0: Did he have a kind of calmer interpretation of what happened?
1: Well, the captain of the De Gracia was David Morehouse. He didn't play that much of a role in it. He was interviewed at the Court of Empire. It was Oliver Devo, who was the first mate, who actually was, he provided the clearest, most unassailable audit of, as a first-hand witness of what he saw when he went on the uh, Maris Lesk on the uh, 4th of December, and having sailed her to Gibraltar for that matter. So he knew the ship, and he was, uh, as I say, a, an upright sort of seaman. Um, yeah. He wouldn't have been—he wouldn't have become first mate or taken command of a ship as he had in the past, anyway, if he hadn't been really. Um, the only, uh, none of his crew who testified uh, were other than. Reliable witness, what we would call reliable witnesses, really. Captain Moorhouse, contrary to a lot of stories in the future, actually, in account of the De Gracia never set foot on the Mary Celeste while she was at sea. It was just Devo and two of the, the uh, decans, the sailors, ordinary seamen, who went on board her, and then the ones who took her to Gibraltar. Um, we don't know all the names of the by the way, the crew of the day de, de Gracias. by the way, were 10 in number, the same as the Mary Celeste, although we only know the names of Devo and three or four of the ones who and on Morehouse, Captain Moorhouse, and three or four of the uh, ordinary seamen who gave evidence at the inquiry. Hmm. So he his view of what the ship was like, he had no axe to go. He had no um, uh, you know, all he was doing was giving his first hand account of what he saw. He was it was empirical observed evidence, which he had no reason to um make anything other than what it was.
0: Yeah. So I mean the kind of the, the whole mystery is is then how did this become so inflated and how, how has its its flame survived?
1: Yeah. That's uh, I've often thought about that uh, because there were a lot of, as I say, there were a lot of derelicts, but not that many were brought in as salvage claims. For one thing, a lot of them were just left to drift or, or so. Yeah. <clears throat> not that many were brought in as salvage claims, but the other thing was that it was it was very almost, and not not wholly uh, unusual to find a ship under sail, abandoned, but what made it significant was that she was under her own power, as it were, sail, under sail, with no one on board, and the fact that she was sailing, sailing, even in a derelict condition, with no one on board, um, made it more curious. The other fact that made it more curious is that the Court of Inquiry at Gibraltar was extensively reported by local press and uh, uh, Lloyd's, of, Lloyd's List and shipping and mercantile Gazette, and other shipping information. So it was quite common uh, news in the news at the time. And bearing in mind also that people in those days were more interested in shipping generally speaking than they were today than they are mm. today because it was so much they were so much closer to that sort of uh, uh business
0: yeah it's part of everyone's yeah. life yeah. and
1: the other I, I think the other thing is that the details of the case were so you know blown up uh, and, and the fact that there was the possibility that someone had murdered, you know, that a crew had murdered the rest of the ship's uh, people, yeah. uh, and then uh, that sort of that sort of drama, I think, really inflamed a lot of the um, interest in it. Uh, you know, but let me just say that the the other thing that later on made it so interesting, because after the Court of Inquiry and a lot of the news reports, they reported it fairly, um, you know, in a very pointed way. They didn't make much bones. They just said, Sully Flood thinks this, uh, the investigation showed this, that, and the other, etc. It was only until much later on that reports and the myths and the fake news and everything uh you know sort of flew up like uh like flights of griffins you know that uh, people made stories because there was no answer to the mystery and i think that is another substantial highlight of why people found it so intriguing was that it Today, we love mysteries. We love love mysteries, and we like to know what the answer is. And the intriguing thing about the Murray Celeste is it had no answer. There is a mystery without an answer. And that is a principle of nature that abhors a vacuum into which Uh. floods all of these... um, posited so-called solutions or possibilities so it was a vacuum waiting to be inundated by supposition alternative facts fake news and uh, but the the interesting thing is from the sort of uh, popular point of view is that not many people know they i don't know what i don't think they know much about the details of the Mary Celeste, the Court of Inquiry, all of that sort of thing anyway. But the other thing was that the Mary Celeste continued. She was released and allowed to sail after the Court of Inquiry. She went to Italy to offload her cargo, and then she came back. She was sold a number of times. Um, Captain Winchester, who owned her, sold her off, and she continued to sail for another dozen years. Then Hmm. She was uh, wrecked on a reef off the west end of Haiti uh, near Port-au-Prince under very suspicious circumstances. They were more than suspicious. They were born out to be fraudulent and this and that. But um, in between the Court of Inquiry and then, Mary Celeste continued to say I was an ordinary merchant ship.
0: Yeah, she was still there. I she think that's fascinating. It's, it's, it wasn't a ghost
1: ship. It wasn't as if she was sunk and then, you know, this or that. Um, she sailed, yeah. and, and she was the Mary Um The way she actually wrecked and why she wrecked is a story in itself. Because people said that there was fraudulent uh, business effort, to live, and there almost certainly was, there definitely was.
0: Well, I think it's a story we'll, we'll come back to another time. Graham, um, you've done brilliantly sharing this story with us. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm determined to get some, um, some of the minutes of the Court of Inquiry to bring to our listeners. So maybe in the next few weeks you'll be able to hear that. Thank you very much indeed for your time today.
1: Sam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: thank you all so much for listening. Now if you're new to the podcast then please the first thing you must do is check out our brilliant YouTube channel where you'll find a host of videos showcasing the maritime world in entirely new ways. I'm currently really enjoying the 3D ship flyovers that we've created. There's a particularly good one of the Titanic which is worth checking out as we hurtle towards April when that great ship went down. You can also see our full-length animation of the building of the Cleopatra, a curious iron Vessel built to bring an ancient Egyptian obelisk from Alexandria to London in the 1870s. Uh, delighted to tell you that this has also gone viral on social media and has been seen more than 320,000 times on Instagram. Please remember that this pod comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation, so do please check out what both of those institutions are up to. Please, in particular, look up the Lloyd's Register Foundation's project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it. Maritime innovation in miniature. Do it now and you will find videos of the world's best ship models filmed with the latest camera technology. It's absolutely extraordinary. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk and where you can join up. It's a brilliant way to both meet people and to learn about the world's maritime past from the very best in the business. That's all for now. Cheerio.